right, folks, before we get into the main thing today, I want to let you know that this particular episode of the Oil & Gas Tech Podcast is made possible by our friends at Hexagon, especially the Asset Lifecycle Intelligence Division at Hexagon, where they are doing amazing things to modernize that part of the business that we usually call enterprise asset management. Now, the best way to learn more about this is you go to hexagonppm.com, hexagonppm.com. Click on the link or tap if you happen to be on your mobile device that says solutions, and you'll see Uh, you'll immediately see everything that they're about. Empowered engineer, connected worker, digital fabricator, confident startup, enterprise project. I mean, the list, it's a whole digital twins. It's all in there. Operational twins. Have a look at what Hexagon is doing in enterprise asset management. Hexagonppm.com. An industry under pressure. Innovation in its finest hour. This is the Oil & Gas Technology Podcast, where sharp minds reveal the brilliance and sheer determination turning great ideas into new realities. Hear about how it happens in real life with your host, Michael O'Sullivan. The views of the host are expressly his own and should not be construed as the views of any other corporation, consortium, governing body, or interplanetary federation. All right, and and here we are. I'm uh, I'm on the line today with Ian Dickinson. I uh, do people. I don't know. Do people still say on the line? We don't really on the line. Isn't isn't really a. It used to be when we were on the phone, we would say we're on the line. But now we're now we're in the. Well, I think you and I are about the same age, so on the line works for us. On the line works. So Ian, thanks. uh, Thanks for thanks for making time. We had to reschedule this a couple of times because you're like this important CEO guy of this up and coming tech company that's uh, taken the industry by storm. So. uh, so I'm glad that we were able to make we were able to make some time. We don't get to have Greg, right? Who's uh, who's one of the founders? He was going to be here today, but he's obviously got something. Uh, he's going to be. He's yeah. got something else going on. Yeah, he got so, pulled away, so he was sorry to miss. But yeah, maybe that's okay. Follow up. Yeah. We'll see. Here's what's going to happen. He's going to listen to this, and he's going to go, man. Those guys were having so much fun. I can't believe I skipped it. So, so, um, so Ian, we were just talking before we turned the mic on. We were talking about Ian versus Ian, and uh, you know, it reminded me. I was uh, when I was in elementary school. There was this kid, and his name was was Ian Weinstein, but mm-hmm. we all called him Ian Weinstein. And okay. I never, I never thought about it until just now when you said Ian that. We were calling that kid the wrong name all that time, probably, right? <laughs> I, I was you know, self-conscious about my name, but it was my last name when I was like in third grade, Dickinson. Oh, uh, yeah, that's probably not a good Dick one. And Dickinson, and the, the, the teacher was teaching us cursive and got to D-I-C-K, and then somebody interrupted her. And, and <laughs> <laughs> Now, is that real? Are you making that up? Or did no, that I'm not making that up. That was third grade. <laughs> Mrs. Wilson, I, I was traumatized by that. It was just left on. Now, had you been in junior high, it would have been the coolest thing ever, right? Yeah, but because third you were, grade, I wasn't yeah, ready to handle grade. it. But. You weren't ready, yeah. We can so. talk about my elementary school drama. Uh, and, yeah. And drama from, yeah. Yeah. Another, yeah, another yeah. time. Maybe, maybe that's, a, that's, that's probably a different podcast altogether. So... Um, so before we get into it, so Long Path Technologies, uh, you, we got introduced uh, through uh, uh, Kayla Ball at Valadier, who's a, she's like a fan favorite on OGGN. She's been on my show a number of times, and she and I used to host a, a live stream, kind of a TV talk show together. So uh, Kayla said you should talk to these guys at Long Path, which we're going to do, um, and we're going to talk. I think we're going to talk about real time methane detection, emissions detection. But first, uh, a little bit about you. So. 
Uh, you and I don't know each other at all, except for the last five minutes. So, so where'd you come from? How'd you get here? And what, what's just yeah. like a short, a short version of your story? Yeah, I'll give a short version. I mean, I joined the company a little over a year ago as a CEO. Um, one of the board members I had worked with in, in a, a prior company and reached out, told me about the company, met the founding group, and just fell in love with not only the group, you know, the founders, but the technology is just a you know, it's yeah. a remarkable technology and, and it's quite a story um, behind how it actually made it from what was a Nobel Prize winning laser technology at the University of Colorado out of a lab into pre-commercial and ultimately into a commercial application that's, we're out working with 18 of the EMP operators today across the Permian and DJ and Anadarko and other basins. And so um, there's really a, a story here, which it, it's too bad Greg can't be on with us because it's it's yeah. one of these stories that there are moments along this development path that are like out of a, out of a movie, you right. know, in terms of, yeah. So, so, so explain that a little bit. Uh, well, you, you skipped over the part about you, but. Yeah, I'll, so, I'll give a little bit more on me and then I can. Got, yeah. And then we'll come back to, so Nobel Prize winning is not like, you know, ears perk up when you say that. Um, the other thing that's very interesting about what you just said is going from like kind of the lab to the real world, which is sometimes okay. an interesting story. But first, uh, yeah, so so what else? What else is, yeah, what so else I mean, do you want you people know, to know I'm, about you? Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm the boring part of the story, but I'll, <laughs> so my yeah. background is actually, I've been in the oil and gas industry since 2012. I was a CEO for an oil, oil field equipment manufacturer that was private equity backed. And then I, I ran as a CEO, a publicly traded oil field services company. Um, mm -hmm. And then prior to that, all my background's really been in telecom and tech. Yeah. And so as, as we talk a little bit about our technology, um, and we'll stay very high level, but it actually has got a telecom type um, infrastructure to it, right? So we're putting out a tower network, which right. each one of these systems covering, you know, 20 square miles. And so it's very telecom-like. And so I, I'm quite familiar with that model and, and that kind of infrastructure deployment. Yeah. And then, yeah. You know, just the, the details behind that. So it's interesting how my background kind of from the telecom and the oil and gas kind of fit here to, to help lead this company. Yeah, it, that uh, that is interesting because it, what we're seeing this more and more at, actually in oil and gas where um, just the like people from other backgrounds, um, insights from other industries. Uh, it, it, it's kind of a new thing. And this comes up on the show all the time. So um uh, so some of, some of the faithful listeners are going always going into that thing about other industries again, but but it but it keeps coming back where it yeah. used to be because it used to be not so much that way. It used to be that like if you came into the oil and gas industry and you were trying to you wanted to do something or sell something or just you know like be relevant, um, it, 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 people weren't really like unless you had done it. It's like, yeah, you you need to have done this in ten other companies just like mine, and otherwise, I'm not really interested. But but it right. seems to be much more like there's a lot, lot more sharing and knowledge, and and we're finding out that like the skills from other places are becoming useful. So um, so hopefully that's working for you. Yeah, and I mean, you know, oil and gas. I mean, there's a lot of technology, and that technology oftentimes has applications beyond a specific industry. You yeah. know, in my background. Um, while I've got different industries experience, you know, there's still principles around business, right? And there's, there's certain kinds of business models, whether you're selling a product or selling a service or a consulting solution. And so those things tend to be transferable, but it's, it's helpful to have that integration of 
just other perspective coming from other industries. And, yeah. you know, and in this case, we're not downhole. We're not, a, you know, we're not doing the exploration or the production side. We're providing a technology that helps operators, you know, find and fix emissions, right? And then, and then gather the data to, to report as need be and to help just improve efficiency of operations. And, you know, so it's got a specific application in oil and gas, but those principles of a solution, a tech-enabled data as a service solution is much broader than any one given industry. So that's yeah. yeah, yeah, I could see, I could see where you, I'm sure you guys are probably working with other other industries um, in a similar way. Uh, unfortunately, we don't care about those because this is right. the oil and gas tech show. No, we do care, we do care. Um, and uh, so let's come back to this tech because there's. Um, uh, so w- w- just like in a nutshell, what is it exactly? Yeah. So again, as I mentioned, you know, this is a, a Nobel prize winning laser technology called a frequency comb laser. And so different than, you know, a laser pointer that everybody's familiar with where you're pointing a red or a green laser. Right. Dot. This laser sends out hundreds of thousands of colors of light. Um, and we have this laser tuned into the frequencies in which methane and CO2 and other molecules absorb the light. And so we're sending this light out, reflecting Mm. it back, and then we're looking at the absorption patterns. And then we can very accurately and very sensitively tell, in this case, how much methane is in the air, right? And so it allows us to quantify down to incredibly sensitive levels. And so this laser technology actually has other physics applications. They use it for uh, the atomic clock, for time transfer, um, there's a bunch of physics stuff that I couldn't even begin to explain. Yeah. But the founders of this company, uh, Greg Reeker, um, had a vision for doing spectroscopy with this technology. And mm. so at a very that's early a, stage... That's having your spectrum removed? Is that what a, a spectroscopy is? <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, uh, <laughs> right. It's, uh, <laughs> Maybe explain just a little bit more. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I know what you're saying, but just for... We have, we have people from lots of different uh, backgrounds, so a little... A little yeah. and, and everybody everybody that listens to the show is into the tech, so you can explain it a little bit more. Yeah, and so um, you know, spectroscopy is basically what I was describing, which is by sending this, this, this laser technology through the atmosphere... And reflecting right. that light back, we can see um, what is absorbed out of those out of out of the the, the wavelengths that tells us because methane absorbs at very specific wavelengths and uh, CO two etc. And so that is wavelengths being the different colors, right? So you got so this comes back. This is the comb. I get it now. Frequency comb. The frequencies are the different colors. So, right. do, but does this does a does an element right or does something like methane? Does it absorb different colors depending on, or like a different, a different composition of colors depending on like the amount that's in the air, or like is it if it's if it's always exactly the same, then why do you need to have all this fancy like color color coded stuff? Yeah, Does well, it, we're gonna get out. We're gonna get outside my expertise here pretty quickly. But all right. you know, nothing just, absorbs. Yeah, nothing absorbs. Um, at different frequencies, it it, it it strongly absorbed at certain frequencies and, and then weak absorption at other frequencies. Right, right. So that gives us a big dynamic range in terms of being able to see stuff that's five miles away, three and a half miles away, down to meters away, depending on kind of the distance and, and where we'll see um, yeah. light absorption. And so... Um, you know, that so you're, you're flushing out. It's the ambiguity, right? You're you're flushing out a lot of ambiguity that might be there if you were doing something simpler. 
Right. And we're looking yeah. at the other species, like we're looking at um, H2O vapors, right? And so, right. you know, you bring, you have a rainstorm, it's like dropping an ice cube in your bourbon, right? Dilutes it, right? And so we need to see all of those, those species in the air to be able to kind of refine down to a very specific methane emission leak. And uh, there's methane, in, yeah. there's methane yeah, yeah. in the air all the time, right? So there's methane in the room you're sitting right. in or I'm sitting in. And so there's an ambient level of methane just present in the atmosphere. And what we're looking for is very small changes in that. And so as we're, you know, as we're monitoring oil and gas facilities, we establish a baseline of emissions. And then we're looking for um, emissions that are above that baseline at some statistical significant level. Yeah. And yeah. we'll watch that and see if we have a persistent leak and then alert on it. So this technology, um, you know, was was incubated out of the University of Colorado and NIST, which is the National Institute of Standards and Technologies. Greg Reeker, the, the lead founder, got involved back in 2012 with a lab piece of equipment, a big bundle of wires, and had this vision for creating a commercial product that, that was weather-hardened and miniaturized and, and field deployable. And beginning in 2015, the company received Department of Energy grant funding, part of this monitor program, and started the started the process of developing this commercial system and went through a series of grant funds. Most recently, there was a Department of Energy scale-up, ARPA-E scale-up fund that came in for $5 million, and that was for scaling the technology up. Now, we got awarded that early last year. We yeah, brought in yeah. some additional capital and really started the, the, the commercial growth in 2021. So it's been this it's been this whole development process from lab to pre-commercial to commercial to now you know a scaling uh, business. So so that's that that is the path that everybody has to follow, right? Um, and I've seen this many times with with tech startups where um, they get hung up like on that going from the that path of going from the lab to the to the at scale deployment yep. is where a lot of times things kind of fall apart um it's not always for lack of funding sometimes it's just other reasons um they but, call it the uh they call it the valley of death yeah that's right? so it's actually got a term i mean it really is going yeah. from that nascent kind of technology in that view to something that's commercial it does take funding it takes resources it takes some good luck um right. it takes a lot of perseverance and so it takes all those things but that kind of valley of death and that's where you know this this department of energy rpe grant funding was actually quite helpful for the company right because right. it wasn't right. at a stage where you could go out and maybe raise seed capital or angel capital it needed more commercial development it mm -hmm. need, needed more proof coming out of the lab so to speak and so that funding got the company to the point where investors could see the commercial application and get yeah. behind it with, with private money. Do you, do you find that it also, uh, I mean, I've seen where sometimes besides the funding and the luck, um, I actually, it's funny you say that because I had a conversation with the founder of a small software company I was working with a few years ago. And I said, I, this is, I, I'm not going to, I spent a few months with them and I said, you know, I don't think this isn't the right place for me to be spending time right now. And he said, why? And I said, well, because you are still at the stage where you need luck. And mm -hmm. that's not, and I'm, I'm somebody who comes, who typically comes in later. And, uh, 
And he said, he said, well, yeah, he said, you're right. And I said, well, the problem is that when we first talked, you didn't tell me that you were still at the stage <laughs> where you need luck. People don't always recognize it, right? He wasn't intentionally trying to mislead me, um, it, which gets to the point that uh, um, sometimes it also takes uh, uh, new people coming in that have different backgrounds and different skills. Like the inventor is... Um, and Greg's ears are probably perking up right now, but the inventor oftentimes is not the person, uh, not that they go away, but their strength is innovation. And some of those other things that come later are, isn't, you know, you need different people for that. Is that, maybe that's how you got involved, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that's uh, really kind of the role I play is to help, um, you know, strategically and, and organizationally put the company in a position to, to grow and scale and make this, you know, a business yeah. that, that meets its its potential, um, but it's all on the back of the innovators who have the vision right. and the concept and the and the smarts to sort it out. It also requires um, the market meeting you. So if you go back to 2015 or even back to 2012, mm-hmm. you know methane and methane detection in the oil and gas industry and just uh, other you know agriculture and waste, mm-hmm. it, it certainly wasn't the headline topic that it is today. No. And so there was this skating to the puck that was happening years before this was the topic it is today. And so yeah. sometimes yeah. it's also the convergence of the market meeting the innovation at the right time. And this is an example where, you know, that, that kind of coordinated beautifully, right, mm-hmm. in terms of when we were ready for this commercial expansion. It, it synced up closely with the interest in, in addressing this issue. So, yeah, I was going to say somebody's crystal ball was, was tuned in because, because you arrived just at the perfect time. Like, you're right. Any other time prior to this, uh, would not have been the same as probably what you're experiencing now. Yeah. Yeah. So it took some vision and took some, um, you know, some faith here that if you put the time and effort in and you develop a technology that that's capable of what this technology is capable, it's going to find its application. You just can't predict the level of focus that this is now receiving. And so it's a, it's a nice convergence of things. Right. And that's a little bit of the luck maybe. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, sorry. So the good news is that you have made it through the Valley of death and, um, and you're on the other side now. So you get the, you're, you're getting to enjoy seeing this, this invention actually do some good in the world. Right. So how are, uh, so, I mean, obviously we could see, we can imagine you're, uh, you've got this real-time methane, very, very uh, sophisticated methane detection. We can all imagine the kinds of things that you could do with that. Uh, but, what, but what are people actually doing with it right now in the real world? Yeah, so just a little more background on the technology. So we place in the field this 50-foot retractable tower. And at the top of that tower is a laser telescope transceiver. And it works its way around the field, almost like a methane radar. It's a different technology covering a 20 square mile area, 13,000 acres. And so all the facilities that are under the coverage of that tower, we can monitor methane on each one of those facilities. And we do that by placing these reflective mirrors Mm -hmm. and bracket each facility that we're going to monitor. And so that's what our deployments look like, right? And so we're we're putting out a a 50-foot tower that's covering a 20 square mile area. And then we're just, um, for, the, for the customers, for the operators who are our partners, um, we're providing them simply emissions monitoring 24-7 on each of those facilities. And then we're alerting them when they've got emissions that are above a baseline or problematic or above some threshold that they set. 
And that allows them to kind of then uh, go address the leak if that's the case, or if it's just a processing issue, it just gives them the intelligence to make sure that they're managing those facilities effectively. Yeah. Um, the real goal, at least in terms of methane mitigation, is to find the big emissions quickly. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a 80-20 rule or a fat tail, right? So about 80% of the emissions are coming from 20% of the events, Yeah. right? So you get these small things going, all of a sudden you have a large stuck dump valve or a thief hatch that's you know, open or an unlit flare, right? right? So if you can find those leaks quickly and get those addressed, you'll address 80% of the methane issue in the field. And so that's the idea is continuously monitoring, finding the big stuff and going out and fixing it. And then over time, the operators using this data, combining with their own SCADA, are getting smarter and smarter about what's happening on pad day in, day out. And they're starting to make adjustments with their VRUs and yeah, just overall yeah, operating yeah. efficiencies. So that's, you know, that's how they're using it. That's how the, you know, that's how the, the customers are kind of taking this tech and putting it to work. Yeah, I mean, we could imagine uh, using, the, using it as an input. So rather than notifying you got a problem let's go fix it you could use it as an input um uh to some sort of automation right because we're because we're seeing a lot of new automation capabilities come to SCADA by the way automation is not new to to the SCADA world but but you can only automate what you can know needs to be automated which is dependent on the data that you have so it's not that um it's not that we're inventing better ways to turn valves although maybe we are i don't know but it's about having more information uh and more not just information but having insights that tell us when we need to turn a valve that maybe we didn't know before yep. so are you seeing um um is is that is that as you're talking to operators is that part of the vision to be able to take this and uh and and actually drive like preventive types of things, or I yeah. guess you're you're monitoring the methane that's already in the air. So I don't know. Maybe does it does it does it help with that? No, it does. I mean, it's a really really good point. I mean, that's the idea is that you know an emission on pad is usually an indication something's haywire, right? An right. emission above what would just be a normal ambient level, um, yeah. and so it's a whole set of data now that that they didn't necessarily have access to. Previously, and so there is predictive analytics, right? So, hey, when we see line pressure build, it's typically followed by a large uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. event, right? And right. so, there are some predictive things that they can start doing now to manage line pressure and flare temps. And so, it's a piece of data that is kind of new into this data ecosystem that they're managing. And and that's exactly right. I mean, I think the goal is to get more predictive, and then understand the root cause of these emissions, and then try to get after you know, better designed, you know, tankless batteries and better designed VRUs, yeah. you know, to try to, to try to eliminate the missions before they start. But this data is really helpful in finding them. Right. Well, in creating, yeah. I would imagine as, you know, so the way all that, a lot of that predictive stuff is done, like you said, we find correlations between things, right? right. They tell us that when we start to see this correlation, I remember actually Kayla was telling me about this one time about how they're able to, at the other, like at the end of the pipeline, they're able to predict that they're about to get the wrong stuff that's not supposed to be in the pipeline. Yeah. And I said, how in the world, like if you, if I turn my water faucet on and mud comes out, and then it starts flowing clear water again. How in the world are you going to tell me the next time mud's going to come out? Like, how do you, 
how how do yeah. you know that by just measuring at the end? And she said, well, there's correlations to everything, right? So you yeah. can so now this data, which has a different level of sensitivity, right? It means that now so if I'm the guy creating the the algorithms for the, the correlations, I'm probably very happy to get like this new well well what do I have before? So for the people who for the for the poor souls yeah. who don't have your stuff, what are they doing? Well, so historically, and, and the EPA is kind of has regulations around this, um, the operators kind of from a regulatory standpoint were required to go out to these facilities twice a year with an optical gas image camera. And so yeah. there's a trained operator knows to run one of these cam- cameras, they're expensive, $100,000 camera, and they go out to each facility, basically like on a bus route, put eyes on every piece of equipment, write the report, submit that. And so that was happening twice a year. Yeah, so the EPA yeah. is, is coming out with some new rules here. I expect that, in, you know, at least draft in another draft of the new rules that will require that four times a year. And there's some other requirements coming with that. So the technology historically has been mostly that optical gas imaging cameras. Now there's a whole landscape of technologies that have entered the, the space recently, all the way from satellites to flyover technologies that, you know, that are affixed to planes or drones or helicopters. Right, um, right. There's still right. the handheld cameras, and then there's these continuous monitors, and those would be a long pass system that's looking at the facilities every day. And then there's also point sensors, right? Project Canary, people will be familiar right, with that. Right, right, right. And so there's a there's a whole breadth of technologies that are out there now. But historically, yeah, I mean, Michael, that's what people were doing. They're going out to to yeah. facilities with the camera, and so, still are. But right, right. Yeah. It's funny how. You said hundred thousand dollar camera, and I thought it's funny how um, we all uh, people will say, "Okay, I'll buy a hundred thousand dollar camera." But when you show them a piece of software that saves them, they need to have the camera, and you say you want to charge twenty thousand dollars for it, they say, "Oh, that's too expensive for software." Right? I I, I don't know what your price is. I'm I'm making up. You know, the, the I'm, I haven't looked we're at your much price. Much less book. than that. Yeah, <laughs> but less. but but you know the point, and I've been in that situation before, right? Where it's like software technology, computer technology has a perceived like this is how much it ought to cost, and then um um and then other things have this perception of this is how much these things cost, and uh, it's always interesting to see how people think about that but um uh but the the interesting thing to me here and i think which is maybe part of this this nobel prize winning um it's not just the way that you're collecting because 20 20 square miles is pretty good coverage right you put up one tower you get 20 square miles that's that's, i I think that seems pretty good to me um um uh, there's any number of times I could break, drop that camera and break it in the course of <laughs> driving through 20 square miles. But, um, uh, but True. the type, the, but the, the, the data, uh, the, the type of data, the quality of the data or the resolution, their sensitivity, I don't know, whatever the right word is. Um, it, it seems like with this, uh, frequency combing business uh mm-hmm. is that allowing you to get uh not just have a better way of collecting to the data but actually have uh data that's more useful in these yeah. you know, you know yes. what i'm getting at no, yeah. great question i mean one of so first first off i mean the system is incredibly sensitive right down to you know le, you know down to a single scfh or 0.2 mcf to give you a sense i mean it's a quarter of a human breath of methane from three miles away we can see yeah, it's very very sensitive, and we can quantify accurately. And that quantification is important because it helps you delineate between a leak that you really need to go address because it's a massive one, 
hmm. versus one that's quite small, right? And so being able to prioritize how you're responding in the field based right. on lead size. It also is important, ultimately, when you start thinking about methane intensity and some of the requirements that are coming from the end markets. We'll see what the ESG requirements are. We'll see if we get to performance-based measures coming out of regulation and, and other certification. But that ability to quantify accurately mm-hmm. and, and to monitor continuously is, we feel, and in the operators we're working with, feel it's it's the critical path. Mm-hmm. Um, if There's two types of emissions that are happening on at the field. They're either intermittent, so these little spiky emissions, we call it kind of the noise. Yeah. And then you have these large persistent leaks. Right. Could just be the cows passing by out there in, in Midlands in the Permian. You, you, know, you, you could be the cows. <laughs> so. It could just be little upsets in the system, right? Yeah. These are complex systems with a lot of connections and attachments. And so you're going to see a little bit of this chatter, right? But you, when you see a large persistent leak, you want to know about it and go out and address it. And then even that chatter over time, you can start to narrow. Yeah. yeah. Right? And you can start to reduce. And so as the market is is developing and there's going to be requirements around operating responsibly and being able to show your methane intensity of your production. Mm-hmm. Um, that ability to quantify is more and more important. The other thing is, and we've been finding this more and more in partnership with the operators, is that finding these leaks and fixing them is actually good business that pays for the monitoring itself. Because this is actually the product that's leaking into the air, right? It's like spilled milk. Yeah, in the air. yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Right, right. Yeah. Right, and so this is the actual product, and so it's not just a byproduct in most cases. It's actually a sellable product. So let's keep it in the pipe. Well, well, that's something. So that's interesting because one of the things that comes up in these ESG discussions a lot, especially among people who are not exactly seeing eye to eye, is. You know, you have some. Um, you have you have one side that says you must do this, uh, like you like th- that wants to tell every CEO of every uh, of any of every company that's involved with hydrocarbon production, you must do these things, and we're gonna and it's painful and it's gonna be difficult, but you must do it for the greater good, and mm-hmm. um, and it is difficult, you know, for a lot of companies. It's really, it's not, I mean, I mean parts of it are very difficult uh and then there's another group that says well you know look companies are in business to make money and they should be because that's how people like live (laughs) they they employ people and if you really want to motivate the leadership of a company or the ceo to do something show show them some way that they can do it where uh there's some roi like there's some money in it right not because they're greedy and they only care about money but because that's how companies survive and um and uh, and it's almost become a little bit of a religious argument, like there's like like that shouldn't matter. But well, the fact is, is that if you can show them a, a pat, say, well, there's some money in it for you if you do it this way, then that's always good, right? So, it's so a beautiful so, part of this, right? I mean, yeah. this is this is a this is a a process that that is good for the environment. There's no question about it, right? I mean, reducing right. methane um, is good for the environment. And there's lots of reasons to do it for that reason. But it also is good business, right? From a pure capital perspective, yeah, it's yeah. just straight good business, right? Uh, you, you don't want to be leaking the product into, um, you know, out of your pipe and away from your, from your revenue stream. Um, there's safety components to this as well. Sure. So there's, there's all kinds of good reasons, really a win, win for everybody. Yeah. Um, but I agree. I mean, it, you know, it's one thing to, to do it for, you know, 
regulatory reasons, right? It's another to do it because it's good business. And the right, things right. that we do in this in, in in you know in this industry and in other industries that are aligned around good capital management and good business management, mm-hmm. those things get traction. And so um, I think that's quite helpful. But I also see that the operators are committed to to operating responsibly, right? Yeah, go figure. Uh, it's it's, it's uh, uh, and, and as much as some people just want to want to not believe that, um, uh, you know, we're we're in the business these days of of of, of relegating people as deniers of various things, right? You don't want to be a denier of something, and right. uh, uh, which really just means that you think different. But but in this case, we have uh, like I I see this all the time where I think now the operators. Like they're serious. Like their hearts are in it. They're really trying. And yep. and and but you have uh, but you have deniers of of that. I think that just uh, are they're just not convinced. Um, do you th- well, do you think one, one thing that could convince Michael is that yeah you know, a lot of these operators are doing a lot more than the regulations require. I mean, I mm. described to you what the EPA requires, which is a visit twice a year, and that may go to four times a year. We have a lot of operators who have eyes on right. these facilities 24-7 using long path and other technologies. And so you're seeing the operators go above and beyond what the regulation would require. And, yeah. what, you know, so, you know, it's um, it's encouraging to see that there's a good economic ROI path on on mm-hmm. finding emissions and, and addressing them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so as a company, philosophically, we want to have a positive impact on the environment. Our technology can help with that. But we want to help our operators run their business more efficiently. And so, yeah. you know, we don't really take sides on all that, all, you know, all that political stuff. We want to provide a technology that meets the need of the operator. And those needs are vast, right? I mean, they, they have needs to meet regulatory requirements. They got needs to meet end market requirements. They have shareholders that want to see, you know, uh, operating performance right both yeah yeah bottom line and and your impact uh, on the environment and so we think we can be helpful across all those fronts but our alignments with the operators and and you know one of the nice things about our system is it's got a lot of flexibility and so we can kind of meet the operator with whatever program you know they're they're wanting to run and 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 yeah so so what what does it take um yeah that's it that's it's good it's good that you're not getting mixed up in the about it because that's 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 a losing like the, getting mixed up in that argument is a losing fight but um uh but meanwhile fortunately like good people keep doing good things so uh how do uh so if i'm one of those good people <laughs> but how, how do you uh what's the i mean how do i go from not having this capability to having this capability now that you know how to commercialize it and deploy it at scale what does that what does that look like for me if that's what i what i want to do well it's it's fairly simple whether it's our technology or another one i I mean for us you know we'll go out to the field we'll deploy the tower we'll replace we'll place these mirrors out at each Mm -hmm. facility and then it takes us a, a few days to kind of acquire all of those mirrors, those retro reflectors, yeah. bring the data up, and then we turn them onto the dashboard. We make the data available for them to pull into their own system, their own um, like, yeah, 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 their own data environment. And so it's you know it's a couple weeks set up, and they're they're up and going. And it's, it's, really not, yeah, yeah. it's not disruptive, right? Because you don't you don't have to actually like connect into any of uh, the industrial 
process controls that are out there. You're just setting up mirrors and yeah. Yeah, again, I mean, we place a tower central in the field, and it's usually on a corner of a central pad. Yeah. And then we place these mirrors on on poles, kind of bracketing each facility that we're going to monitor. And, and by right. bracketing the facility, we're creating an upwind and a downwind beam. Mm -hmm. right, so an integrated beam where we can see the methane coming across the upwind beam, going across the downwind beam. Yeah. And we can, we can so it's, a, it's really a pretty easy setup. And in terms of the data, it's not all that complicated. It's like you either got an issue or you don't, right? And then you can analyze the, you know, do further analytics around the correlations we were talking about. But, you know, it's a fairly straightforward product at the end of the day. It's, you know, it's, it's quantified emissions yeah. reading off of your facilities. Do, uh, what, what about, so uh, this is one of these things that comes up from time to time. People talk about, uh, I, although I hear it less, so maybe maybe this situation is getting better. Connectivity, right? You're, doing, you're out there in these remote places yeah. and, um, you know, 5G hasn't quite saved the whole world yet. So, uh, but we joke, we used to joke, right? Like, well... You know, that'll work if you want to put a spool of cable in the back of your truck and drive it out there and then connect it back to right. like, what, 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 how are you, are, are you, are you finding that to continue to be a constraint in places? You know, we've, we've had good luck with that in part because we have a 50 foot tower mm. and we have one mm -hmm. point for communications, right? And so we right. can put a really high grade directional antenna. And all we really need is a cell phone worth of connection because all the data crunching we do is done on the, at the edge. Okay, and we're right. just lifting kind of the the raw, you know, the raw the um, the emissions data itself, and so we don't need more than really a cell phone connection, and we get the advantage of a of a tower. Yeah, um, we've yeah. we've actually done quite well with communications, and I agree. I mean, it's tough out there. I mean, you've got these yeah. really yeah. remote areas, um, but we've had you know really good luck with that. Who does the uh, system administration on the the computers that are doing the number crunching at the edge? Is that is that? Well, a, so we have, yeah, we have teams of analysts, right, who are yeah. watching all the systems and making sure that they're operating correctly, and also evaluating the data. Um, the data is the customer's data, right? And so, right, right, they're, they're looking at their output and and may have questions. So we have monitoring teams here that work with the customers on questions they have and just make sure the systems are up and running. But all that's done remotely. Yeah, but I mean, if I got a box that like all of a sudden like like there's a bad wire or something and it's yeah. not talking to the one next to it. Um, right. Yeah. So do you, do you parachute people into, uh, yeah. <laughs> to go to go or to patch, to do anybody, security, yeah. security patches or something like that. I, you know, I think that would be, I mean, that, that would be something to see, <laughs> something to see. You, yeah, well, you, yeah, your, yeah. your staff yeah. would retire very quickly. You'd be, you'd have no people left. <laughs> well, depends. we just have the del the daredevils wanting to jump out of planes. No, we do have field teams, right? So we've got folks that are in Midland and here in Colorado and, Oklahoma, who we dispatch. So if we have a system right, that's down right. for a, you know, like you said, you know, loose wire or something like that, they'll they'll de deploy to the field and, and make that fix. Yeah, okay. we've got we've got a team that does the maintenance and the install. Yeah, because it's another. I mean, I'm kind of making a joke, but it's another thing that comes up a lot, which is especially with the whole the last couple of years with the whole edge computing revolution. Right? Is um, it's all fun and games until you realize that something goes wrong and you know, like we don't, we don't have IT people out in these places, right? We don't have a lot of times people, um, you know, so now I got to think about, um, and it used to be that 
like all the the ICS folks, like they knew how to take care of their stuff, right? They knew how to take care of their SCADA systems and their process controls and, and, and the computers that went along with that. But now we're bringing all, this, all these new, you know, uh, like new things out there uh, computing mm. wise. And it's a constraint because people go, well, it's re- what you got is really slick, and but once we get it deployed out there, now I got to think about you know about having IT people who can get out there and 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 deal with it. So and there's a lot of technologies that are coming along to alleviate that, right? To 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 right. Yeah, we designed the system to be field addressable, so to speak, and so yeah. you know you don't have folks going out and tinkering with the inner innards of the of the comb laser, right? It's a rack, and so if we really have a uh, issue, we'll just pull that rack, put a new one in, and send it back. Yeah. And yeah. so that we don't need super technical people in the field. They might be tightening a wire. They might be, you know, right, addressing right. an air conditioning unit that went out. Right. Red I mean, wire, blue wire, technical right. stuff. Right. Yeah. And then all of the, the, if you think about the software and kind of the that piece, that's really all handled remotely, right? So our tech people yeah. can kind yeah. of remote in and 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 deal with issues there, but. Um, this yeah, is part so of that part of that commercialization thing that we were talking about before, yeah. right? Because yeah. so. your point's a great one, right? If you put out this really sensitive equipment that needs high tech IT people on site, I mean, that's just not scalable. And so the way no. we've defined the system is that, you know, we can take a, a, a general tech from the field, train them in a couple of weeks, and they can do most of the work that's needed on those systems in the field. Yeah, cool. All yeah. right. So it sounds like you've thought I, I I threw everything I could at you. It sounds like you've thought through everything. Um, uh, it's, it's, uh, I think the, the tech story is really interesting to see. I mean, there's a lot of things that come out of, um, and Nobel prize winning, you said, so, yes. so, um, who, who got the million dollars? What, what they get? Jan that, Hall was, Jan Hall was <laughs> the, the professor at the university of Colorado who won the Nobel prize in 05. Um, yeah, yeah. A, a legend around here, but yeah, it's, um, you know, it, it's one of those examples where, and these don't hap- happen off that that often, where you you find these really innovative technologies, and then you find a commercial path. Right. right. Um, and and as we were talking about at the at the start here, is it it does take innovators who have a vision for it, and then it takes yeah. the right kind of capital, and then it takes people with business experience, and it takes you know a market that's developing, and so it takes all those things to converge. Right. Um, but I think we're going to continue to see just remarkable technologies that, that come out of these universities, these labs, and whether or not they can be taken commercial, well, there's a lot that goes into that. But yeah. this is certainly an example of, you know, very successful transition from, you know. Yeah. From, it, well, it's good to see. It's good to so, – so what we did here, besides talking about uh, frequency comb lasers – did I get it that right? Was that right? Yeah, that was what you said. Yeah. Uh, besides that, and and methane detection, we also gave a little uh, primer on uh, for for people who are who have got great inventions and uh, um, uh, and there is you know the mistake is usually all I have to do is show this to people and everybody's going to want to buy it because it's so great, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, and there's a whole path of going from from inventing something that has potential to actually uh, getting to where you guys are. So so congratulations yeah. on, well, on I mean, getting think, there. Yeah, and the industry too. I mean, I, I should say that, you know, it's been, it's been great working with these different operators. You know, I think... 
They are, you know, maybe the industry sometimes gets a bad rap, at least from people outside of the industry. And I spent half my career outside the industry and I never thought of the oil and gas industry as being innovative. And as I got involved in 2012. You haven't I mean, been listening to this podcast because that's my soapbox all the time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's so, that's the problem is that's what people, people everybody thinks that like it's it's backwards and slow to change and right. But yeah. you find out that it's some, some cool stuff. Yeah. They've got some amazing tech and they're, and they're adopting technologies like ours and finding ways to integrate it. So, yeah. you know, it's it's an industry that, that has um, integrated an amazing amount of innovative technology over the years, right? And, yeah. and people familiar with it know where this has come over the last 15, 20 years. And this is just another step in that direction. So these these companies are, are very familiar with taking the cutting edge technology and putting it to use. And so we're, we're seeing the results of that. Yeah, that's good. And they've, uh, sounds like they've been nice enough to you to help you out. Um, it's the... It's the newer, friendlier oil and gas industry, you know. So 20 years ago, you might not have had such a such a lovely time, but but people are um, they've they've softened they've softened over the years. <laughs> well, they're they're out solving um, important operating um, priorities, yeah. and uh, yeah, yeah, so they're they've been great to work with, and and you know we we've, we've got we've got more work ahead of us, but boy, I got to tell you, I mean this this um, this opportunity. For us as a company, is just enormous, and yeah, um, yeah, yeah, we're really appreciative of um, just the chance to be part of part of the solution. Um, yeah, yeah. All right, good. Yeah. Well, that's uh, I'm, I'm watching. I'm watching a little timer here. We're probably getting to that point where we don't want people to change the channel if we keep talking. So uh, that's yeah. a good place. Where I, I forgot to mention that I guess you're in Colorado, right? So uh, yeah, uh, I oh, there goes my microphone. It's falling because um, I see you got your life preserver on. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you got, is it cold? Is it cold? We got we got beautiful weather down here in Houston right now. It's like uh, it's like uh, it's it's low 80s and sunny degrees it's like it's like it's like springtime well when you're yeah. in colorado you learn to, to wear layers right because yeah you know yeah from one day to the next it changes but yeah we're in colorado it's um it's a great place to be operating out of we've got a quite a bit of oil field operations here and we have yeah, these tech yeah. so it's yeah. a good spot and i'm a colorado uh native so it's good are you me. yeah all right well nobody's perfect but uh <laughs> Michael, thank you so much, man. This has All been right, great. Ian, really thanks. Nice yeah, yeah, likewise. I appreciate you making time. Check us out next week for another entertaining and yet useful episode of Oil & Gas Tech Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.